A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. This is Rachel Fisher. Hi, this is Desi Jedekin. Hi. Hi. We're going to start out the show by giving a shout out to our Patreon subscribers. We're not going to read everyone from the past two weeks. We're playing catch up. We're playing catch up with the Patreon shout outs from when we, we had to take a break. Erica, Timothy, Jasmine, Jenna, Cole, Sydney, the Cheeky Geek, Jen, Suzanne, Aaron, Rachel, Karen, Anna, Ava, Pixie, Hannah, Jenny, Julia, Naomi, Kimberly, Samantha, Jory, Jessica, Al, Stephanie, Jay, <laughs> Melon. Melon's helping out. Oh, he brought his ice cream cone in. Colleen, Acacia, Marissa, Sharon, TR, Diana, Catherine, Jamie, Pamela, Autumn, Michael, Christina, Rosie, Diane, Pamela, Danielle, Jennifer, Claire, Megan, Jeff, Gareth, A-Bombs, Deanna, Gina, Viviana, Blitz the Cat, I'd like to see a picture of Blitz the Cat. Me too. I love that we have a cat subscribing to our Patreon. He loves us. Anna, Dana, Marie, Dana, Elizabeth, Lauren, Natasha, Sarah, Mary, Summer, Molly, Teresa, and Shelby. I just read all of them. Oh, wow. I was feeling ambitious. We did it. We did it. Thank you guys so much. It really helps the show, and we appreciate your support, and enjoy the content over on our Patreon. Okay. So, look, George Michael is going to be a three-parter, okay? I'm cool with that. (laughs) So, today is actually the release of the documentary, Freedom Uncut. It was a one-day theatrical release, so I didn't get to see it because I have been working all day. I'm hoping... It will be streaming at some point, preferably before next week would be nice. So I can maybe add some stuff from it if it's um, relevant or I don't know it. I also saw that there will be a new bio released on the 28th next Tuesday. Isn't that crazy? Bio? Oh, like a book? A a new book about him. Oh. Isn't it weird that I chose to do him and there's these two things coming out this month? (laughs) That's completely unintentional. Anyway. I might also try to get that before I post before I finish part three cool. and see if there's any new uh, things in that that are revealed that I don't have. So, yeah, once again, my sources for this episode were George Michael by Rob Jovanovich and Andrew Ridgely's memoir, Wham, George Michael and me. Cute book. A lot yeah. of good pictures in there. So where we left off, Wham has ended They have just performed their final concert to a massive crowd at Wembley Stadium. And George Michael is off on his own in the music business for the first time uh, pursuing a solo career. 
So part of the reason George wanted Wham to end, there's like, there's a lot of stuff going on here, was that he was really struggling not only with this newfound lack of privacy that fame brought him, but with his image. This Wham persona was uh, juvenile humor. It was all about teenage fun. And that was not who he was. He was coming to terms with the fact that after wanting fame his whole life, he didn't really want it anymore. He kind of wanted his old life back in many ways, which I'm sure is pretty common when you become massively famous like that. He is quoted as saying his privacy was all gone now and that fame was like having your life documented for approval and disapproval down to the minutest of details. And that's a pretty accurate description, I think. And that seems really uh, difficult to deal with. In an interview with Q Magazine, he said, I woke up one morning and realized there had been a period in Wham when I actually had completely forgotten who I was. So after Wham, uh, he was he was in a really deep depression that would last for about eight months post wham. He said that he didn't think he wanted to get back into the music business. And according to him, um, the problem, like I mentioned before, was this idea of who was George Michael. He had developed this character that the world saw him as, and that's who they acted like they were dealing with when they were with him in person. And uh, he decided he needed to unravel the monster he had created and start from scratch. So that was the process he went through starting post-wham, which you can imagine is a very difficult thing to go through. So part of that process was eliminating his dependence on others. His first step would be learning to drive. He didn't even have his driver's license or the the ability to like drive himself anywhere. He had to rely on chauffeurs. So you can imagine the freedom of being able to just get in your car and go a place where you can have some privacy and anonymity uh, in your car alone. Right. So this was definitely needed because he moved to Los Angeles in 1986 and you definitely need a car here. So the next thing he did was an even bigger professional step was parting way with no mismanagement. Now this is kind of a, an interesting story. He found out that they had sold their business to a South African company using Andrew and George's solo careers as a selling point. Now, one, he was not even told about this deal uh, as their biggest client, which is fucked up. But two, the new company was owned by Sol Kersner, who was the owner of Sun City, a South African resort, 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 <laughs> that offered artists large sums of money to break the sanctions in place due to apartheid. Now, I don't know if you probably don't remember this because you were a baby, but there was a song called Sun City that was um, a lot of artists were on it. And the the lead of it, my memory is that Stephen Van Zandt Uh was like, he was, he kind of put this together. So they created this song to kind of, um, bring awareness and they wanted, um, I mean, people like Springsteen and Bob Dylan performed on this song and they really were like, we don't want people to play here while apartheid is in uh, place. So they kind of did this thing that sort of shamed musicians into not supporting this uh, place. So this was a good anti-apartheid Yes, it was song. an anti-apartheid song. Okay. Like, don't get caught playing in Sun City. Right. There's sanctions in place for a fucking reason. Right. Like, don't break them, no matter how much you get. So George was furious about this because he is very far left. Like his dad was a communist. He is against all of this kind of stuff. Like, so he was even more furious that he would be associated with this, this uh, pro-apartheid. pro-apartheid organization. So 
The management quickly realized their huge blunder. They tried to pull out of the deal, but it was too late. Michael, George Michael basically never spoke to them again, and the deal collapsed. So they lost everything by trying to pull this one over. So now he's really alone uh, in the U.S., and things seem very uncertain. He begins drinking a lot. And his one friend, who is only in town occasionally for jobs, is a makeup artist named Kathy Jung. So that's like his best friend in America. And she doesn't even live in L.A., so he just sees her occasionally. We'll get to her more later. She's most famous for appearing in the I Want Your Sex video. Mm, Okay. So uh, he is also taking a lot of ecstasy again. He has he's gained weight and he says that his depression gets even more severe when he comes down off of ecstasy. So it's just kind of escalating this problem. He's constantly telling his worried family he's fine. Uh, Obviously he's lying and they're very concerned. In addition to all of this, he's really struggling with his sexuality at this point. Now at the age of 19, Michael did tell Andrew Ridgely that he was bisexual. This is the only person he uh, revealed this to, Uh, eventually he does tell his two sisters and they advise him not to tell his parents. He states that his early fantasies were about women, which led me to believe I was on the path to heterosexuality, but at puberty, he started to fantasize about men. So he's still um, hiding his bisexuality from the world at this point. In 1986, he did an interview with Paula Yates, who at the time had a chat show called Sex with Paula where she would interview famous guests um, about sex while they were in bed together. So kind of like our old podcast, (laughs) but not in bed and no pie. When she asked him about his fantasies, George played coy and said his mother was watching, eventually saying, I couldn't possibly tell you, but ask me for a demonstration later. So he got very good at deflecting uh, these kind of questions because he's funny. And I I think uh, he, he got good at it. Towards the end of Wham, though, he began to think there was something more. Uh, in 2004 interview, he said, I used to sleep with women quite a lot in the Wham days, but it never felt it could develop into a relationship because I knew that emotionally I was a gay man. He said this in 1984? In 2004. Oh, okay. And I didn't want to commit to them, but I was attracted to them. Then I became ashamed that I might be using them. I decided I had to stop, which I did when I began to worry about AIDS, which was becoming prevalent in Britain. Although I had always had safe sex, I didn't want to sleep with a woman without telling her I was bisexual. I felt that it would be irresponsible. Basically, I didn't want to have that uncomfortable conversation that might ruin the moment, so I stopped sleeping with them. He went on to say that part of his depression at the end of the wham was because he realized he was gay and not bisexual. Enter Andrew Ridgely, who flew to L.A. to see him once again, giving him comfort and support in his time of need and really there to bolster him and push him forward on his journey to be a solo artist. Now, he had also told Andrew over the phone that everything was okay, but something wasn't sitting right with Andrew, who was shocked when he uh, arrived and saw George's appearance and his mood. He knew he was not well. They had a heart-to-heart while he was there, George basically pouring out all of his insecurities, his fears. According to Andrew, he played him a song for the solo project that he was beginning to work on that knocked him out of his socks. This song was called Kissing a Fool, which will end up being the closing track on Faith. Andrew felt that in addition to struggling with who he was as a solo artist, he was also... um, struggling with his sexuality. That was obviously obvious to him as well. Um, he was he was worried about publicly acknowledging this and concerned that with more success, all of these struggles would be increased. 
Um, so Andrew basically said his advice was writing music is the only thing that gives you satisfaction and contentment. Um, if there's any chance of you finding happiness, you have to fulfill your talent. So he said that he knew there was only one thing for George to do, and that was to lay his claim as the greatest singer-songwriter of his generation. I'm sorry. I don't know why that made me cry. Aww. It's such a sweet pap talk. Yeah, it's really sweet. Um, okay. So <laughs> why did that crying. hit me? I don't know why it hit they're, me when I said it. <laughs> because their friendship is so pure. It is so pure that he like... And Always they, was there to bolster him. And they've been friends since high school. Yes. They just, he loved, I mean, that's love. So the next day, George said he felt like a weight had been lifted off of his shoulders. Andrew, once again, was able to lift him out of this funk. And he began working on his solo album in earnest. In November, his label picked up the option for his solo career that would last for five albums. And George went home for Christmas that year, fitter and happier than he had been in months. Now, while Andrew had given him this huge boost, there was another thing that happened in early 87 that really pushed him forward as a solo artist, giving him even more confidence. At the beginning of the year, George went to Detroit where he would be doing his first solo artist record with one of his idols, Aretha Franklin. This was a mutually beneficial arrangement, according to both of them. George wanted to be big in the U.S., and Aretha was looking to get more engagement with the U.K. fan base. I find it hard to believe she didn't have it, but right. I guess she wanted more. George would later say that standing in a studio, looking across at Aretha, trading lines was something that even a couple of years previous, he could never have dreamed would happen. The song and the accompanying video were completed in two days. That song, I Knew You Were Waiting For Me, scored number one on both the UK singles chart and the US Billboard Hot 100 upon its release. And they would go on to win a Grammy Award in 1988 for Best R&B Performance by a Duo or Group. He was more determined than ever to write new material with a new vigor, hoping that his first solo album would be ready to drop by the end of 87. Now, he was actually excited to show people his real music, saying that his wham days, people just thought he was this, you know, prat, <laughs> as he said, um, that they looked at this bloke pouncing around and pretty with his pretty blonde hair and the shorts and the, and the white teeth. Um, and they thought that was him, but he was about to show the world that he was much more adult than his wham days. And his first solo single would drop in July of 1987, pretty much changing what everyone thought of him uh, instantly. That single was called I Want Your Sex. What, now, a, what, a, <laughs> what a first single to have. This was also a track for the summer's hit movie, Beverly Hills Cop 2. I completely forgot that it was in that movie. Um, now, this song is also interestingly often compared to Born in the USA by Bruce Springsteen. Hear me out. <laughs> is it's it? A, yes. It is a song that is infamously misinterpreted. Right. Um, so Born in the USA is often misinterpreted as being very pro-America when it's actually an indictment of the Vietnam War and our role in that war. I Want Your Sex is often seen as promoting promiscuity when it's actually about monogamy. And in the video, he writes Explore Monogamy in lipstick on a nude back. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> This is about monogamy. He wants, he still wants sex, but just from one person. Yeah. I mean, it's in the lyrics. Listen to the lyrics, folks. Don't just read the headline. <laughs> um, so this song is very controversial. Like it's banned by tons of radio stations in the UK and US due to its sexually suggestive lyrics. 
MTV would only broadcast the video after like dark, like during the late night hours. This is the video I mentioned before that features uh, makeup artist Kathy Jong. She is in a bosque, which is like the teddy without the bottoms and the garters uh, right. walking around in those looking hot. I was, I remember seeing this video and being like, she is so beautiful. Yeah, she's really beautiful. <laughs> I was just so, I couldn't believe how beautiful she was. Um, so obviously he argues that sex is beautiful. If the sex is monogamous, uh, he records a brief prologue for the video in which he says, this song is not about casual sex. Now he did have a relationship with her. He, uh, thought of her as an artistic muse. And he later said that he had, she had been his only bona fide girlfriend, uh, and that she did know of his bisexuality at the time. Now, part of the, I, the outcry to this video was the context. There was a kind of hysteria at this, this time about the AIDS epidemic. And by hysteria, I don't mean, obviously it was something people should be concerned about, but it's more the uneducated fears. A lot of people had at that time still. So, morticians were refusing to embalm bodies of victims um, of the virus. Everyone was paranoid and uh, they were referring to it as the gay plague, which further stigmatized an already marginalized community. So people were misinterpreting this as promoting sleeping around uh, and they found it to be dangerous and irresponsible. Not that these moral crusaders would have been necessarily fine with casual sex or even sex outside of marriage, but this song was promoting safe sex. So he's clearly an adult artist at this time. I mean, the song is great. There's some Prince vibes to it, like his breathy voice sometimes. He's definitely a more sexy artist on this one. I love part two as well. Yeah. Of this with like the horns and it's, it's a really cool. Uh, anyway, as we all know, the controversy only made it a huge hit. <laughs> so good for you. Now, uh, <laughs> this actually climbs the U.S. charts. Casey Kasem refuses to say the song title. Come on. Only referring to it as the new single by George Michael. What a nerd. And some radio stations play a toned down version called I Want Your Love. No, they don't. Which is stupid because it does say I Want Your Love in it. <laughs> so you're just saying it twice. Um, now, this song did reach number two in the U.S. and number three in the U.K. So it was a big hit. He credits the video with a lot of its success saying... Um, Although it, sometimes it did overshadow the music. It's just a very horny uh, video. It is. I love it. Um, there's like blindfolds. Um, there's writhing on satin there's sheets. <laughs> Look, satin sheets. Satin seat. Satin. Don't shat. <laughs> Don't shat. In, if you shat in your sheets, that's not sexy. <laughs> God oh, damn my it. Good. So he kind of like, it's obviously frustrating for him still because it's like, no matter how much he tries to be taken seriously, people just kind of like frustrate him, right? By taking things he does the wrong way. He can't even get the song played in the UK at, at some point. So he, the video, so he, he makes copies of it and, and gives it for free to bars and cafes that's, that's to cute. have them play it. Um, cause he does think it's good. So he kind of throws his hands in the air and he focuses on finishing the album. So despite his frustrations, he says that he still has faith in what life was going to deliver and that, uh, he was going to get the things he wanted and faith would be the title of the album as well as one of the songs. And that would be the next single released from the album before its release. Faith drops in October of 87. 
It opens with a church organ version of Wham's Freedom. And then we have an acoustic guitar, clapping, catchy little song. Can I just say, whenever I hear church organ movies, I, music, I always think Faith is going to start playing. <laughs> it's like so in, ingrained in my mind. Even in like, did you watch the Gucci movie? They have a scene where Faith plays and it's like the best part of the movie because they're in a church and the organ's playing. And I'm like, that's the Faith organ. And then Faith starts. And oh, it's that's such good. A, it's such a good moment. The video uh, adds to the iconicness. We get to see his new look. He has blue jeans, stubble, his crucifix earring, leather jacket boots, hot boy shit. Now, this album has so many hits. It's almost like a greatest hits album. We also get I Want Your Sex Parts 1 and 2, Father Figure, One More Try, Monkey, Kissing a Fool. It's just an all-time banger. it's, (laughs) It's loaded with like the best I, I like listen to it during this and sometimes I wouldn't recognize the title even though I listened to this album like a million times yeah and I would put it on I was like oh yeah I know every word it's <laughs> like do you know what I mean it's just like every song even the ones that weren't released as singles are just great so another incredible aspect of this album is the variety of song styles that somehow still form this cohesive album and the album artwork is also great uh, it's very well received both commercially and critically one reviewer from Rolling Stone says at the time it's almost too good like that's <laughs> how good it is uh, a music journalist named Steve Huey says it's a superbly crafted mainstream pop rock masterpiece one of the finest pop albums of the 80s it would stay in the Billboard Top 10 until May of 1989. Wow. Yes. Wow. It sold over 10 million copies at the time and now is over 25 million copies. So it's a huge hit. He is now the biggest music star on the planet, uh, basically. Uh, all of this is further heightened by the release of Father Figure in January. Like it oh. just It's just like hit after hit. The video for Father Figure is also great. That's my favorite George Michael song. Uh. I mean, it's definitely up there. It's maybe my top two. <laughs> like, and I have done two drag performances to Father Figure. It it's is just, such a good song. It's, it's spectacular. Just so, so he begins working on his Faith World Tour at this point with a 25-year-old choreographer named Paula Abdul, who's now, she's working on her debut album, Forever Your Girl, at the time. Wow. So... That's 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 what year we're talking about. <laughs> the tour begins in February and George fully admits he starts having some diva moments on tour, mostly because he's just surrounded by people who are all there for him and only him and uh, all of that stuff. Um, friends come to visit him on on tour, like his former bandmates, David Mortimer and Andros Giorgio. Uh, they have trouble getting in to see him because that's how big he is at this point. By the way, I released um, last week after I recorded um, last week's episode, I looked up Andros Giorgio and um, he is George's like he grew up with George. George considered him like a cousin, even though they're not blood relatives. He's the father of James Kennedy from Vanderpump Rules. Really? Yeah. And that's George Michael was James Kennedy's godfather. Oh, my God. I had no idea. If you don't watch Vanderpump Rules, that will mean nothing to you. It's just a weird connection. <laughs> so the tour also um, was where he kind of started notice to notice that everyone laughed at all of his jokes. And he was like, hmm, <laughs> yes, I am very funny, but they're all paid by me. 
And so he started feeling like everyone was incentivized to like him and it started wearing on him. He said he began to, it began to frighten him that he was surrounded by people who couldn't tell him to fuck off. So he really made sure um, that people in his personal life were happy to tell him to fuck off. And that's what he tried to do to kind of balance that. Ridgely actually joins him on stage during this tour to do I'm Your Man at a UK show. And for George, unfortunately, that only heightened how lonely he felt as a solo artist. He missed Andrew uh, being on stage with him. Now, during this tour, George had some health issues. He would typically get this doing long uh, tours like that, kind of like throat fatigue from singing every night and uh, screaming in these loud venues to be heard. So he went to get it checked out and he actually did have a cyst, which would which required surgery, um, surgery. So he took a little tour break to have the surgery done and then obviously rest in recovery. Uh, the next leg of the tour, he was at a press conference and things went south very quickly. There were rumors surrounding his health in particular, because of this, that people in the press started wondering if he had AIDS. Now, this was a very common rumor faced by any male celebrity of indeterminate sexuality whenever they faced any sort of illness or took time off from the public eye. This was like an awful accusation that certain types of media would come at at these uh, men with. So that was a very frustrating thing for him that he had to constantly deal with this. He starts doing a lot more charity for AIDS, and that also puts speculation on him. Like, why do you care if you're not you know gay or like that right. kind of stuff like it's like i don't know because it's like fucked up and, <laughs> and sad and i care about right. people who right. aren't me um so he eventually ends the tour in uh, florida on halloween what could be more scary than that so he reflects on the tour after it ends and admits that uh he didn't get what he wanted on it and it was like, at some point, he's like, I might as well just indulge these screaming girls. And he started playing up the raunchiness and kind of resigned himself to being this cocky wanker, as he put it, um, and sort of tried to have fun with his sex symbol status. Uh, as 1989 rolled around, George had gone from singing about being on the dole to becoming one of the biggest pop stars in the world. And he was like rich. Yeah. He's got a lot of money now. He's also rolling in awards. Uh, He's getting MTV Music Awards. He's getting Grammys. Um, During the 80s, Michael Jackson had nine number ones. Madonna had seven. George Michael had eight. So, yeah, he had met that goal as well, to be in the uh, the stratosphere with those two. Faith will go on to win Grammy um, Grammy Award for Album of the Year. He also wins the Video Vanguard Award uh, at the 1989 MTV Video Music Awards. And that's basically like, because he had all the best videos. (laughs) Yeah. Like that's sort of like all-star of the year, that award, right? Right. It's like the Hall of Fame. Yes. And I mean, that's, he's pretty young still. I mean, that's what you have to remember. He's like very young. So 1988, he often describes it as like the best year of his life and the worst. In this film that he participated in called A Different Story, he talks more about how success did not make him happy. He started to think there was something wrong, the fact that he couldn't enjoy uh, this success. The whole faith process to him, the promotion, the video, the tour, all the awards left him exhausted. He felt far away from his friends and family and just very isolated. 
Um, so he reached uh, a new level of maturity, however, when he realized that true happiness would not come from this lifestyle, but only if he was able to finally focus on a private life. So 1989 was a turning point for him. He bought a home in Santa Barbara and kind of settled down at the age of 26. He also decided he was going to start working on an autobiography, which he would entitle Bear. And this is where we'll take a break and come back with much more. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm the queen of starting a free trial offer and forgetting to cancel it, oftentimes being charged for months for something I'm not even using. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. With Rocket Money, I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, I can cancel it with a tap. I never have to get on the phone with customer service. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill, and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. It's definitely saved me money and now I can use that money to waste on things I do want. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. That's rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. So... I mentioned earlier his cousin, Andros Giorgio, who is uh, not really his cousin. He talks in this this memoir or autobiography, Bear, about turning down large offers of money to tell George's secrets. And he obviously turns those down until years later, when he finally agrees to be interviewed for a documentary. He recalls at the end of the Faith Tour, getting very drunk with George. He says George drank three bottles of wine. That seems like a lot, but I guess it's possible. And George finally found the courage to tell him he was gay and that he had been sleeping with a male friend of Andros's. So, I mean, this was a big falling out with them when Andros did this interview years later. In the book, he also talks like the final, final straw. Like first he was mad about this interview and then he um, he called Jerry Holloway, Hallowell? Hallowell. Hallowell, who George was friends with. He called her like, a fat hippo or something in anger and George never spoke to him again. <laughs> I'm not even close personal friends with Jerry Hollowell, but if someone said that uh, d- disparaging word about her to me, I would also disown them. Yeah. I mean, if, like, if a guy rude. said that about any woman in my oh. presence, I would be like, goodbye. <laughs> like, yeah. Unless, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's not good. So they had a big falling out uh, at the end there. So, Obviously, 
he's still secret though with us. He's still secretive about his sexuality at this point. He just has told a few more friends. So did this guy, was this interview pre 1998? Did he like try and out George Michael? Uh, I'm not sure exactly when it was, but, he was but it's around there. Yeah. But he's just, he's, he's running his mouth. He started running his mouth at some point. He's a, he's basically like, I don't want to say failed musician because I think he works a little bit, but he's obviously not George Michael level or right. even, uh, Andrew Ridgely level, like nothing, like no one knows who he is. So, you know, at this point, he's the world's biggest hetero sex symbol. And it's like a lot of pressure to him that he's gay and he doesn't think people will handle that well. So um, anyways, a lot of the problems he faced at the end of the wham that he thought would be solved by going solo at the end of the wham at the end of the wham. Is that what we're <laughs> the wham? Uh, <laughs> So he says in the book, there's a quote of him saying, my God, I'm a massive star and I think I may be a poof. What am I going to do? This isn't going to end well. That's a direct quote from him. So with this state of mind, he goes to work on the music for his second solo album, which will be a departure from what he did on Faith, much how Faith was a departure from what he did with Wham. Uh, This album will be intensely personal to him. In 1990, he tells his record company, Sony, that for his second album, he does not want to do any promotions like he did for Faith. He doesn't want to do tours. He doesn't want to do music videos, nothing. In his opinion, uh, at the level he's at, it's probably going to be pretty successful regardless of him having to do all of that stuff. And according to him, he is, quote, tired of whoring himself out. Not only did he feel like it was detrimental to his survival as an artist, but he wanted to be a balanced human being too. And this, this level of promotion is like, it's hard. Yeah. Um, so he's, we trying- can't even do a small level. <laughs> Seriously. Of promotion. It's nonstop. Like, yeah, like he, he said that he's like, at that point I was trying to avoid passing the point of no return. He had at that point seen, Madonna and Michael Jackson had sort of passed that point. Like they could never go back to having a normal life at some point. And he still feels like maybe he can at this point. So the label obviously wants faith 2.0. They did not like the direction of the new album saying that this was George's Nebraska, which is Springsteen's critically acclaimed album. That was a commercial um, bomb at the time of its release It was also a departure from his sort of popular sound at the time. So they're like, why would you want to do this? He's now being billed as the reluctant pop star. And this leads to um, a very bizarre letter to the editor by Frank Sinatra. I'm going to read this uh, letter to you. (laughs) Letter to which editor? From the LA Times. Like he wrote a letter to the editor of the LA Times. I don't know. That's when newspapers you used to just write... Like letters to the editor, right? Frank Sinatra wrote this? Yes. Wait, pause it. Let me get the letter. Okay. All right. Let's hear it. When I saw your calendar cover today about George Michael, the reluctant pop star, my first reaction was he should thank the good Lord every morning when he wakes up to have all that he has. And that'll make two of us thanking God every morning for all we have. I don't understand a guy who lives in the hopes of reducing the strain of his celebrity status. Here's a kid who wanted to be a pop star since he was about seven years old. And now that he's a smash performer and songwriter at 27, he wants to quit doing what tons of gifted youngsters all over the world would shoot their grandma 
off for? Just one crack at what he's complaining about. Come on, George, loosen up. Swing, man. Dust off those gossamer wings and fly yourself to the moon of your choice and be grateful to carry the baggage we've all had to carry since those lean nights of sleeping on buses and helping the driver unload the instruments. And no more of that talk about the tragedy of fame. The tragedy of fame is when no one shows up and you're slinging to the cleaning lady in some empty joint that hasn't been a, had a paying customer since St. Swithin's Day, and you're nowhere near that. You're top dog on the top rung of a tall ladder called stardom, <laughs> which in Latin means thanks to the fans who were there when it was lonely. <laughs> well, <laughs> clearly Frank Sinatra was a huge fan of Faith, and he just wanted another album absolutely that's what that letter was about right well there's more talent must not be wasted those who have it and you obviously do or today's calendar cover would have been about rudy valley i love his references or like from 1930 those who have talent must hug it embrace it nurture it and share it lest it be taken away from you as fast as it was it was loaned to you trust me i've been there frank sinatra okay <laughs> why would you this why, is like <laughs> why would he do that why would he do that I mean, I can only assume that Frank, who had a very famously up and down career with lots of comebacks, uh, can't believe that someone would have this difficulty. I mean, it's different. It's a different level. Frank never knew what someone from the 80s, 90s, 2000s. It's like it's not the same as it was in the 50s and 60s where studios controlled more press. Like it's different. Not, I mean, Frank is obviously a huge star uh, back then. I just think it's different. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, you know, but George Michael is adamant. He doesn't care about Frank fucking Sinatra's letter to the editor. <laughs> He's a reluctant <laughs> pop star, goddammit. Praying for Time is selected as the lead single for Listen Without Prejudice, Volume 1. The title is an indication of his desire to be taken more seriously as a songwriter. Uh, so this song, Praying for Time, I hadn't heard this song in a really long time. It's very good song. Do you remember this one? Yeah. The lyrics are about uh, injustice. This was released in August of 1990, and it is critically uh, well-received. Um, Rolling Stone magazine called it a distraught look at the world's astounding woundedness. And many people said only only George Michael could get away, like a rich guy could get away with writing a song like this was George Michael, like, cause he truly was empathetic and uh, felt these things. It reached number one on the U S uh, billboard and a video was re- released shortly after that was just lyrics on a dark background. He did not appear in the video. The album was released in September of 1990. It reached number one uh, in the UK and number two on the U S billboard. And it had, a lot of hits on it. It also has a really incredible cover of Stevie Wonder's They Won't Go When I Go. I forgot about that one. I listened to it today. It's really good. But the hit that's most associated with the album is probably Freedom 90. And a large part of that, well, yes, it's an all-time banger, (laughs) but the video was extremely cool and revolutionary uh, at the time. What's so interesting about this video and just about how he put out this album in general, like his whole concept for it was just the fact that he was this international sex symbol and so handsome, but he wasn't showcasing his face and his looks at this time. Yes. It was just about his music, which is just an interesting approach because so much of pop music is like seeing the icon and making this image. Yes. That sells the music basically. And being hot. Uh, yeah. And I mean, I, I definitely can see 
we're seeing people like this complain about fame and money and all of that can be irritating. Yeah. But I, I do, I believe him. Like, I do feel like he struggled with this. And like I said before, he had more issues than just fame. He was a completely different person and couldn't show who he was. And I do think he was a sensitive artist. Like, yeah, he literally, uh, he wasn't just a pop star. He, he was an artist with something to say and all of his albums that come out, you know, post faith are like personal statements of where he's at in life. So if you don't know the video, um, (laughs) I mean, he basically got all of the supermodels of the day to appear in the video instead of him. And they lip sync his song, uh, models like Naomi Campbell, Linda Evangelista, Christy Turlington, Tatiana Petit, Cindy Crawford. So the big, the top ones, I was thinking like, the 90s supermodels were like a different level. Like, we'll never be back there. Like, that was like, they were like the movie stars. They were the movie stars. And we don't live in the era anymore of when supermodels were on magazine covers because it's just actors on magazine covers yes. now. So this was just like very specific to the 90s. This video is also directed by David Fincher. Yeah. So, I mean, it's pretty... He got a $300,000 budget for this video and he was not in it. And Sony was like pissed. David Fincher, sorry to side note, but David Fincher also directed Madonna's Oh Father video. He, he did a lot of videos. He's done yeah. a lot of really, he's a great music video director. Yeah, he's great. So I, there's like so many directors in the 90s who got their start in videos. Yes. Because that's when videos really became high concept yes. uh, and great. Who did... um Express yourself. I love that video. Oh god, that's a famous director too. I oh, think. Oh yeah, I I don't I can't know. remember, but I fucking love that video. It's, it's great. It's very like 1920s, like Metropolis. Yes, I love it. So the album ends with a song called "Waiting," and the lyrics, "Is it too late to try again?" Here I am, and George was very happy with this album. He he really feel like this has was the closest he had ever come to expressing himself completely through his music, and he. He said, like, unlike in the past where he just wanted to move on from the album, this one, he just wanted to go on and on. He really uh, was happy with it, although less commercially successful than Faith. I mean, what wouldn't be? This was a critical hit um, and commercial hit as well. Uh, Most reviews recognized the maturity and artistry and gave him a lot of the respect he had so long craved. Now, in 1991, he embarks on the cover to cover tour. This tour is not promotion for Listen Without Prejudice, Volume 1. It is Michael singing his favorite cover songs, including Don't Let the Sun Go Down um, on Me, which he sang at an um, earlier charity performance, an Elton John song. Um, this was released at a, as a single at the end of 91 and reached number one in both the UK and US. He takes a break from the cover to cover tour and goes to perform at Rock in Rio. This is a huge musical festival in Brazil. George performs on the bill with Guns N' Roses in excess. Uh, the night that he is headlining, he performs for 170,000 people. That's crazy. Because wow. Wembley was like 72,000. Right. That is massive. Those yeah. are those concerts you see and you're like, I would be petrified in that crowd because yeah. it's so huge. Now, during his performance, he is distracted during the show by a young Brazilian designer named Anselmo Filippa, who catches his eye in the front row. It is so distracting to George that he has to go to the opposite side of the stage to finish his performance. Later that night at a private party, Anselmo is introduced to George, who would later say that moment was the one that changed his life. 
It was over, I'm sorry, it was love at first sight. George said that Anselmo showed him how to live, how to relax, and how to enjoy life. Although he had had sexual encounters with men before, this was his first same-sex relationship. He said, I never had a moral problem with being gay. I thought I had fallen in love with women a couple of times. Then I fell in love with a man and realized that none of those things had ever been love. In a 1990 interview with The Advocate, he told the editor-in-chief that it was falling in love with a man that ended his conflict over his bisexuality. So he came out as bi in... When he was 19. To Andrew only. But when did he publicly come out as bi? He never publicly came out as bi. But you said this 1990 advocate. 1999. 99. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. I thought you said 1990. No, he's still in the the closet. Yeah, he's still in the closet. He would also say um, that it's very hard to be proud of your sexuality when it hasn't brought you any joy. Once it's associated with joy and love, it's very easy to be proud of who you are. Now, he spends all his time with Anselmo, and he seems to finally have found this personal happiness that had evaded him for so long. He began working on Listen Without Prejudice, Volume 2, while living with Anselmo in his Santa Barbara home. But five months into the relationship, Anselmo gives George some devastating news. He has tested HIV positive. And it is possible that George has been infected as well at this time. They don't know yet. I mean, as we know, he does not uh, end up being infected, which is very lucky. Shortly after he finds out this news, it's announced that his childhood hero, Freddie Mercury, has died at home of complications from AIDS. So this is just an awful period for George. Elton and George release a new version of Don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me. All proceeds will be going to an AIDS-related charity. Uh, George does numerous interviews to raise money and awareness for these charities, often breaking down in tears during them. Now, many thought it was due to his affection for Freddie Mercury, and although that was part of it, uh, no one knew that the love of his life was going through uh, the same pain that Freddie Mercury had just recently gone through. His family had no idea what he was going through as he hadn't told them about Anselmo or that he was gay. He still didn't know if he himself had um, been infected for like months. I don't, I mean, I don't know how testing worked then or if he even delayed it because he was scared. I just, they didn't really discuss that in the book. Uh, Even friends who knew about Anselmo didn't know about his diagnosis as Anselmo had forbidden George from telling anyone. So he truly was suffering in silence during this period. He performed with Queen at the Freddie Mercury Tribute Concert in April of 1992 at Wembley Stadium. The concert was a tribute to Freddie Mercury with the proceeds going to AIDS research. He performed Somebody to Love, which was hailed as one of the best performances of the concert. There's video of this. Yeah, this performance, one of the all-time live performances for me. It is so emotionally raw I, I it's one yeah. of those it's one of those live performances that when i watch it, it it makes me choke up it's it's yeah i mean it's such a beautiful rendition so beautiful. of that song the song is great yeah period uh and there's a quote from brian may of queen who said like he's like there's like a few notes he hit that's just like freddie coming through him yeah uh, it's really great there's a famous video of him rehearsing it where david bowie is watching and then the live performance is obviously great he would later reflect that it was probably the proudest moment of me of my career 
And he would later say it was a bitter irony that while paying tribute to his childhood idol, as we mentioned, he's also paying tribute to the love of his life who is dying of AIDS. So, uh, so Anselmo, <clears throat> it, he has AIDS now. Yes. It's not just, it's not just HIV positive. Oh, he does. So he is very sick. So he's like, he's in that period where things can happen very fast, right? right. Uh, it's before a lot of the medications were available, uh, et cetera. So by this point, Listen Without Prejudice, Volume 2, has been scrapped. Uh, there is a legal battle beginning between George and Sony. So he donates the tracks that he already wrote for this to a charity project called Red Hot and Dance. This is an organization that put out an album previously called Red Hot and Blue. Do you remember that album? A lot of big artists covered Cole Porter. Um, so this is the album where Too Funky came out on. Oh, That was supposed to be on the album that he scrapped. So that's obviously a hit. He donates all the proceeds of that to charity. 1993 is all about this lawsuit with Sony and spending as much time as possible with Anselmo. George wants him in the U S where he believes he will be, uh, he will get better treatment, but Anselmo was insistent. He be treated in Brazil. He doesn't want to be near the press and he feels like that will cause stress to everyone. Um, he doesn't want to have this turned into a circus um, because of his connection to George. On March 26, 1993, Philippa dies um, of AIDS-related brain hemorrhage in Brazil. Now, because George, uh, <laughs> he can't go to the funeral, obviously, because he also doesn't want to create a circus by doing that. And he's not ready to open up about uh, um, Anselmo or his sexuality. Um, but he's even more furious with the press because now he thinks it's the press's fault and Selma wasn't with him at the end because they were so on his ass this at this point um, that he couldn't have that. So he does finally tell his family that he is gay and he tells them about Anselmo. So to the world, he's still this straight um, pop star, but he's more focused um, on age charity, age, AIDS related charities and as I mentioned earlier in this episode, that creates this venomous elements that come out in the press. Everyone's like, oh, why are you so interested in AIDS? That kind of stuff pops up at this time, like the worst time of his life. Um, and he kind of starts going in hiding at this point. He is in misery. Like he has no record um, contract now. He's not, he's not writing music. Love of his life has just died. In June of that year, he turns 30 and he decides to throw a big party just to like have some kind of joy. Um, his trial against Sony is on the horizon and he kind of uses his pain uh, about Anselmo's death to propel him forward in this battle that he knows is going to be uh, excruciating. Unfortunately, after a lengthy trial, Sony prevails. Um, he says afterwards that he'll never record for Sony again and he files for an appeal in August of 94. By that fall, he begins to write again, the focus of which is his feelings for Anselmo. He writes a song called Jesus to a Child, which is a tribute to Philippa. He records it and he performs it live um, at Berlin's Brandenburg Gate, the first MTV Europe Music Awards show. According to him, even though people still don't know he's gay, the song is clearly about a relationship with a man. He says, even if you thought I was singing in character, it's not really common for straight guys to sing in character about being gay. So he's still shocked that people kind of don't get it, but they don't, or some people do, I guess, but who knows? His career is in limbo. His de depression begins rearing its um, ugly head again, and he starts relying more and more on marijuana to alleviate his dark moods. Um, an unlikely friendship 
helps him during this time as well. He he starts becoming friends with his old hairmate, Princess Diana. No way. Yes. He oh, says, yeah, they were friends. <laughs> yeah. I forgot about that. So he says they just clicked. And I mean, I get it. She also has this contentious relationship with the press and fame. Um, people, of course, have to ask if they're sleeping together. Like, like, God forbid two people are fucking friends. And he's like, no, that would be a disastrous thing to do. They eventually do grow apart. Um, it's, you know, their lives are both chaotic. Uh, but he also says she's like needy. She's like a little too needy for him. And he kind of needs to take care of himself at this point. And she needed someone who could be there for her nonstop. So they kind of drift apart. Nothing uh, bad happened. But he does remember watching the interview she did with Martin Bashir, where she basically goes dirty and deep into like her marriage and the divorce and the cheating and everything. And he's upset by this because this is his friend. And he thinks she seems unwell and feels kind of bad about blowing her off when he watches this. He finally manages to get out of his contract in 1995 and makes plan to release his next album in 96. That album will be titled Older. The first single is Jesus to a Child. Um, so he he said he would have gotten through it without pot because he smokes a lot of pot while writing this um, record. Um, he says, oh, he says he couldn't have gotten gotten through it without pot. Uh, He says you can even hear him light a joint at the end of spinning the wheel. I think the last track, you can hear him, that lighter sound. The album is a modest hit and critically well-received. Fast Love is probably the biggest hit on that album. But better still for George is his personal life. In June of 96, he meets 38-year-old Texan, self-made millionaire Kenny Goss at the Beverly Hot Springs Spa in LA. Now, Goss jokes about how even though it's an upscale spa, they realized it sounded pretty shady that that would be where they met. So they make up a story that they met at Fred Siegel, which he's like, yeah, I guess that's equally uh, campy. Fred Siegel's like a very high-end, high-end trendy store. kind of store in LA. George asks him out to dinner, not knowing if he's gay. Uh, he is. And the pair quickly hit it off. Now, he fulfills another one of his longtime ambitions. He performs um, for MTV Unplugged. Oh, yeah. So this is great. He does um, an acoustic performance. That's what Unplugged is. And it's pretty rare for um, a pop star who have a lot of production on their tracks to do something like this. But obviously, he has a great voice. And these songs are easily stripped down and beautiful sounding. I used to love those unplugs. Oh, man. There's so many good songs on them. And they always did like covers that were yes. great uh, as well. I love uh, I love the Kurt Cobain cover of the David Bowie. I can't remember. The Man, the man Who, who Sold yeah. the World. I, that is like one of my favorite covers of all time. I think the Alice in Chains Unplugged is my favorite. It was such a great series. It was really uh, good. Really good. So this is his first live performance in many years. And in the audience is Michael's mother, Leslie. Uh, He actually pauses the show to say hi to her. Really sweet moment. And this was a very magical night for him. He said he lost himself in singing and just having his mom there knowing she was proud of him. This would be the last time she saw him perform. A week later, he called his mom to tell her about his new relationship with Goss, and she had her own news. She had been diagnosed with skin cancer. She told him everything would be fine, but she knew she had a particularly aggressive form of melanoma, and she died shortly after Christmas of 96. The family was in shock. This was very fast, and George in particular was devastated. 
In 2008, speaking about the loss of Anselmo, Michael said, it was a terribly depressing time. It took about three years to grieve, and then I lost my mother. I almost felt like I was cursed. Now, Kenny became a lifeline for George. Um, he, He was just living in constant fear of death. He was worried that he would lose another loved one unexpectedly. Like that was just what his reality was at this point. In fact, he believed Anselmo had sent Kenny to him exactly at that time when he would need someone the most. He felt um, like he had just sorted himself out over the death of his um, true love. And now this, although not as devastating, obviously, as Anselmo or or his mom, in August of 1997, he was once again shocked by the death of one of his close friends, Princess Diana. Uh, he said he began to feel surrounded by death at that point. He spent the rest of 97 keeping a low profile and into 98 as well. He was spending most of his time in L.A. at this point. But he would be back in the public eye in a major way on April 7, 1998. This was the day George Michael was, according to him, outed by his own left hand and that's where we're gonna leave off (laughs) wow can't wait for part three jazzy that was great part two yeah so there's a lot more and this will definitely be a heavier episode part three it's gonna be all the sad stuff so but there's some there was a lot of sad stuff in this one he has a lot of stuff going on in his life yeah (laughs) he goes through a lot I just have a lot of empathy for him. Yeah. Um, So yeah, we'll have a lot more pictures. Right. Good pictures. Instagram. So follow us on Instagram and we will be recording our after show. Which is available on Patreon at the $5 tier. So yeah. Patreon.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. We will be back later this week for our mini episode. And then part three will come out next week. Yep. Bye. Bye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.